family uh, very much years of history, I guess you could say. Uh, as Pastor mentioned, my name is Caleb, Caleb Reed, and my wife's name is Emma. Uh, I was born in, nope, well, actually I was born in Warren, Warren, Maine, so down on Route 1, about an hour, hour and 15 minutes from here or so, that's where I was born, and then raised in that area, and then uh, went off to Bible college, met my wife there, and then after seminary, she and I got married, and then the Lord allowed us to have two children so far, which we are very grateful for. So Gilbert is our firstborn. Uh, He's two, two, coming up on two and a half, and he is the one that keeps us on our toes and in our, on our knees, for sure. And then Ginger is our second born. Ginger uh, is just, just turned four months, so we are thrilled to have those two that the Lord has given us. Um, when I was, I won't give the whole testimony, but uh, when I was in my final year of Bible college, God made it very clear that he was directing us, or directing me, that his gifting and his calling upon my life was the gift of the evangelist. And so as I finished uh, Bible college, I was really wrestling with what the Lord would have and what would be the next step. And so as I went into seminary, really just, just trying to discern the Lord's will, uh, after I got married, we, there was several directions we thought maybe the Lord was leading. There was, a, there was actually in one summer, we had three different churches contact us about coming on staff in some form, and just the Lord closed every door. Uh, and he had directed us in the fall of 19 that he was leading us to launch out into full-time evangelism. And for me, that was a, um, a journey of faith like none other, uh, just because I kept hearing from so many people, oh, he is so young, which it's true compared to uh, the average age of full-time ministers, I am young. And yet, as I was reading several biographies that summer about men that God used throughout history, age has never been a hindrance for someone who just humbly follows the Lord. And God so stirred in my heart. I uh, even read in a biography about the, the youth revival movement at Baylor University back in 1945 by 24-year-old preachers. And God just was stirring me. And I told my wife, I said, if I wait long enough where I'm old enough to be useful to the men who think I'm not old enough yet, I said, I'll have 10 years left. And I can't wait that long. And so God directed us in the fall of 19. He was leading us to launch into full-time evangelism. So 2020, we made it clear. January, we contacted pastors and let them know uh, we, are, we are launching. And so scheduled meetings began to flow in. And it was really remarkable. We were, we were averaging about two a month that began to schedule. And then March hit and everything canceled. And I found myself saying, Lord, what are you doing? And he took me through a journey of breaking uh, dying to self, that is part of what we're going to be dealing with here this evening. But he took me through a journey of brokenness that I probably could not have learned any other way, but uh, having the Lord bring me back to total sufficiency. And are you surrendered? Are you submitted to just Jesus being your all in all? Just yielding to Him, His will, whether you understand it or not. And so the Lord did a great work in my heart during that time. The second half of 2020, things began to open up for churches that were really tired of the lockdown. And the Lord ended up filling our schedule for the rest of the year and then all of 2021. Uh, the rig that's sitting out here is a miracle story. I don't have time to tell it all tonight, but that is the Lord provided that rig, both the truck and the trailer for us. It's completely paid for. It's, uh, the, the rig's 2017. The truck is a 2022. It's a, brand, I pay, it's a brand new truck. I picked it off the lot back in November. It's got 9,000 miles on it. It's paid for for. It is truly a remarkable story because there's no way I could can explain that physically, humanly, other than to say God can still do miracles today. So that is the rig we travel in, which we're very grateful for. Okay, tonight, I've been asking the Lord for several days, Lord, what is it that you would have for our first service here at Clinton? And as I have been praying, again, I, I know some of you, but not any of you well, and so I really don't know what you need. I just know that there are oftentimes there are lessons that the Lord uh, teaches me, and those would be the very lessons the Lord would give us. And over the last several days, the Lord's been dealing with me about this one theme, and as I've been praying, He laid it upon my heart, this is what we're supposed to be looking at here this evening. Uh, Matthew chapter 26, this is a part of a great discourse or a greater uh, yes discourse but also a, uh, a a narrative here explaining the crucifixion of Christ which we've just come off of Easter and we're familiar with some of these texts and yet in this text here we're going to focus in on the humanity of Jesus Christ and understanding the journey that Jesus went of brokenness We've all experienced at some time or another buying something, or something that's been valuable to us and maybe, maybe sentimental to us and seeing it broken. We've all experienced that. Maybe it was a laptop uh, that fell off the counter and smashed on the tile floor. Or maybe it's the phone that you just purchased and dropped out of your hand and cracked the screen. Or maybe it was like that 
terrible brother of mine who just refused to jump high enough when I threw that baseball and smashed right in the middle of my dad's windshield. We've all experienced something that has broken. And certainly if you've experienced that brokenness, you think to yourself, ah, I wish that hadn't happened. In all these examples, brokenness always seems to be something negative. It's difficult, it's upsetting, it's costly, and sometimes it's irreparable. And if we could go back and change all of those circumstances uh, to avoid the thing, the item that was broken, we would do that because in our thinking, natural thinking, brokenness, something to be broken, is something to be resisted. It's not pleasurable. And yet the scripture very clearly deals with brokenness in a very positive sense. Now obviously uh, Psalm 51 would be a, be a passage you would think of in dealing with brokenness where the psalmist David, because of his sin, is write, writing about how broken his spirit is because of the anguish of his own guilt. Uh, Luke chapter 4, Jesus coming to tell that his mission for being on earth was to heal those who have been bruised, those who have been crushed by circumstances, those who have been wounded. Jesus saying, I have come to heal brokenhearted. But brokenness is not just about sin, and brokenness isn't just about being crushed in circumstances that are too painful to bear. Brokenness is also a position of the heart where you come to a place of total submission, unconditional surrender, and absolute obedience. Church family, tonight I believe with a message that God would have us is to ask ourselves, am I totally submitted is my life marked by unconditional surrender? Is my obedience absolute or is it convenient? Church family, are we marked by brokenness? Because I believe that every command of God, every way that a Christian is supposed to live, it has been first exemplified by Jesus Christ. And we're going to see in our text here this evening that Jesus Christ went to a place of great brokenness for the purpose and for the cause of our salvation. Look with me in Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start reading in 36 and read 10 verses, or excuse me, 11 verses. We're going to go from 36 to 46. And as we read this account of Jesus entering into the garden, we are going to see here the picture of brokenness. No, this is not because of sin. This is certainly because of Jesus Though he was under circumstances that were crushing, but the reason that we see this illustration of brokenness in the garden is when Jesus' will is becoming submitted to the Father's. In Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36, the scripture says this, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane. And he saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. And he said unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. In this passage here, we see Jesus coming into these final moments before he is to be betrayed. Now, the disciples are unaware of what Jesus is about to experience. As Jesus has ministered with them, he's tried to explain multiple times, clearly in plain, I was going to say plain English, but I don't think he was using English back then, uh, in Greek, plain Aramaic and maybe Koine Greek, but explaining to them, look, this is my mission. I've come here to die. My kingdom is not of this world. It's of another world. And his disciples didn't get it. 
So he enters into the garden that night and though he knows what he is about to experience, the disciples clueless, even though they've been told, uh, clueless of what Jesus is about to go into, they enter into the garden with him but not understanding the significance. But Jesus now is bearing the weight of the coming crucifixion. Now, sometimes, at least in my experience, knowing the deity of Christ, knowing the, the Godhead that Jesus represents, or that Jesus is, I should say, uh, sometimes I get so focused on Jesus being the Son of God that I miss the humanity of Christ. And just recently, the Lord has been taking me on a journey of understanding that Jesus as a person is identified with me and that I am not just identifying with, with a man that doesn't understand my own needs. Jesus, as a man, has experienced all temptations. And here in the garden, he is experiencing something that some of us have gone through and some of us need to go through, and that is the journey of brokenness. He tells the disciples, coming in, I'll start in verse 36, coming into the garden of Gethsemane, uh, he says unto the disciples, sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. So it seems that he brought all 12 with him after going, coming from the upper room where they broke bread together. Well, excuse me, I'm sorry. He broke bread with them. Judas leaves, so now he has the 11 with him. They come into the garden of Gethsemane. He tells the 11, okay, I'm going to pray. And then verse 37 tells us that he takes Peter, James, and John. So the inner three, the three that he poured himself into, the three that were the closest to him. And he takes these inner three. In verse 37, he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Look at the words of verse 38. He saith unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. Here, Christ is already suffering a deep internal struggle and its crushing weight makes him despair even of life. I find it fascinating here that he divulges, he's giving us a picture into his inner agony here and reveals to his closest disciples what he is struggling with, what he's, the burden that he is bearing under, and he invites these three to bear with him. He challenges them, please come with me. And I have found, church family, that oftentimes when I am going through the valley of the shadow of death, whatever the deep challenge, that it's hard for you to even vocalize to someone else. You just wish there could be someone that would enter into that journey with you. And so that's why he takes these three. But unfortunately, the three don't understand. They don't recognize the agony Jesus is under. Look with him at verse 39, and he went a little further. Uh, excuse me, I, I, went, I went a little bit too quick. Too quickly. Uh, in verse 38, there's a phrase here that sometimes I have missed uh, multiple times. And he reveals to the disciples that his soul despairs of life. He says, even unto death. And I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I just want to mention this. There are believers today that are struggling, that are weighed under a, a burden that sometimes you can't even put your finger on or you can't even describe it. But it seems to be driving you to the ground where you even despair of life. Now, for Christians like myself who always seem to have a cup is half full mentality, for someone to reveal, man, I'm struggling with depression. I feel like I'm living in a cloud or there's just a constant darkness. That has been, for a number of years, very hard for me to understand or, or uh, to, to give empathy to. And because of that, I would often say if someone was struggling with depression, I would just have assumed it was some kind of sin issue. And that certainly could be possible. But as I began to study through this passage, I began to realize that Jesus is revealing to his disciples that even he, in this journey of dark brokenness that he is going through, when I say dark, I don't mean sinful. I mean the pressure that is weighing upon him and the fact that he's bearing it alone because no one else understands it. He reveals to them in his humanity that he even wishes he could die. And let us remember, church family, if you struggle on a regular basis or even periodically with a sense of depression, that close, uh, where it seems that all around you is closing in on you and no one seems to understand, there is someone who understands. There is a man, Jesus Christ, who today still bears the body. He carries, he wears a human body because he wants you to know that today he still understands what you are going through. Again, I don't know you because I've not been here before, but church family, there may be someone here who feels that because you are going through what some Christians have said, oh, that is a, a deplorable sin of depression. Because of that, you may find yourself feeling that not even Jesus would be accepting, but Jesus here identifies and knows how you may feel beyond what any other human being may feel. 
And even Jesus here finds himself weighed down as he enters in. In verse 39, we see here what is the cause for this great anxiety. Scripture says in verse 39, he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Here, Jesus reveals the reason for his inner agony. He's being brought to a place of total brokenness. His human desire and natural resentment of pain are evident. His human will and the Father's will are coming to a climax. Let us not misunderstand this. Jesus entering into the garden has not sinned. He is not resisting the Father's will. But as a man, as a man who is all man, Jesus Christ, he enters into the garden knowing what he is about to experience and his human will and God's will are not united at this point. That does not mean he is in sin. It just means there needs to be a brokenness where he yields his will to the Father's will. He is saying here, revealing to us, Lord, look, you have a will, my Father. You have a cup for me, and I desire that I would not have to bear it. But Lord, I want your will and not my will. Now, we would often think at that point, okay, it should be a done deal. That's the end of it. He surrendered, didn't he? But as you see him coming back out of the garden, the burden has not yet lifted. Verse 40, He cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, What? Could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Christ has a will. His desire this, at this point is to not go into the crucifixion, but full brokenness and surrenders to yield to that. And coming out of the garden, he sees his closest disciples, his closest friends who do not bear in the burden that he bears. They don't carry the burden that he carries. They don't seem to understand the burden that he is carrying in church family. In my own experience and the experience of others, as I have read men who have walked the same journey, it seems that if God is going to lead you on the path of brokenness, where your will has to come submitted to the Father, most people cannot walk that journey with you. It is often a lonely journey. It's often a journey that is misunderstood. It's often a journey that people may be confused by what you are going through and they wonder why it seems you can't get anything together, you can't think straight, or you can't do right. Why does everything fall apart for you? Why aren't your bills paid? And oftentimes... It's because God is leading you to a place of brokenness and even Christ's three disciples who should have been able to enter in with him do not even enter in and do not even understand. Jesus there leaving them goes back into the garden the second time. Verse 42, and he went away again the second time and prayed saying, Oh my father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Verse 44, and he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. Do you see what is happening in our text? Jesus Christ has a will. And it's not sinful to not have the same will as the Father. Sometimes we're just not aware of the Father's will, but Jesus had a will. And as he comes into the garden, his will and God's will came into conflict. And three times Jesus Christ entered into the same prayer saying, Father, my will is at odds with your will, but Father, your will is greater and what you have is greater. And Lord, I want your will to be done, but Father, my flesh loathes that will. Lord, my flesh resists. Lord, my flesh wants my will. But Father, my spirit wants your will. And I, I find it fascinating that he prayed three different times. Oftentimes the journey of brokenness takes time. Oftentimes when the God is going to take someone to a depth of brokenness and submission and surrender, it is not an overnight decision. I find even in my own life, God wants to do a deeper work in I, and oftentimes it takes me through the valley where no one can understand and no one can enter in, but only Jesus, the man Jesus. And we see here Jesus finally coming to that place, not because he was sinful, 
No, finally coming to that place where his human will was submitted to the Father's. Now, church family, may I ask us here this evening, is your will submitted to the Father? How is your journey of brokenness? Could you say that your life, your personality, your opinions is marked by brokenness? Are you known to be someone who can be confronted and dealt with and even mocked and you don't rise up, you don't mock back, you're not angry, but instead you yield yourself to the will of the Father? I found in my life that being a third or fourth generation Christian, I oftentimes forget what it means to be a Christian. And so I'm very grateful that Jesus has saved me, but to realize that my life belongs to Him is something I often struggle with. In other words, because I've been saved for so long, I recognize that God has a will for my life. And because I've been saved so long, I can take my salvation for granted. I can take surrender for granted. And so I live my life wanting to do my thing. And when the Holy Spirit in goodness and kindness comes and reveals, Caleb, I have a will, I have a decision, I have a path for you, I find myself thinking to be a good Christian because I gave him a little part of my life, a little bit of my time, but full surrender, full brokenness where everything that means something precious to me has been yielded to the Father, that I often find difficult. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us, And ye are not your own, for ye have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Have you forgotten who owns you? Or do you remember whose will it is that ought to be running our life? Even though he owns the bill of sale to our life, we think ourselves such a gracious and nice person to allow God to give us a few prods of direction, but we resist giving him the keys to every area because that requires too much sacrifice. It's maybe a little too extreme. That might require too much of us. By nature, we don't like to be broken. We don't like our, submit, we don't like our will to be broken. We don't like our decisions surrendered to the Father. May I ask you, husbands, when your wife confronts you, or maybe not openly confronts you, but maybe suggests in a conversation that there's an area that you need to grow in, what do you do? Do you rise up and react? When your employer or, or someone who has a level of authority over you gives you a command or asks you to do something, do you find yourself resisting? In a prophetic psalm, Psalm 22, the scripture is uh, writing of Jesus Christ saying, it says, but I am a worm and no man. Roy Hessian in his book, The Calvary Road, dealing with the topic of brokenness, quoting this verse, says, we often find ourselves like a snake, ready to coil up and strike at any who would attack us and not as a worm. But Christ here found himself as a worm. In the prophetic psalm, he says, I am a worm and no man. If you look at the characteristics of a worm. A worm has no defense. A worm has no offense. A worm is simply at the will of whoever is holding it. Church family, does that characterize your life? Are your daily decisions submitted to the Spirit's direction? How long do you fight the promptings of the Lord? Are you known to be a difficult person to be around? Do you, find your, do you always find your opinion when it is uh, uh, an opportunity to assert your opinion, are you quick to uh, tell everybody what you think of the situation? And do you sulk when your opinion is rejected? Are your feelings hurt easily? Uh, do you fear uh, obedience because of what someone else might think of you? Uh, do you sacrificially love your spouse or do you demand your rights? Uh, do your children or your grandchildren fear your temper? Are you quick to ask for forgiveness? Or do you justify your outbursts? I find, church family, in my, li my life, if ever I have a time where, where someone gets under my skin, it can always be traced back to a lack of brokenness. See, Christ coming in the garden, he came to a place where his will was submitted, where he allowed himself, he went into Pilate's hall and allowing every single man that he had created to buffet him and scream at him and lie about him. The very things that we as blue-blooded Americans would stand up and defend our rights, and certainly we have those rights, but would you be willing to lay those rights down as Christ did? See, I'm not about throwing American Christianity under the bus. I'm not about saying, well, we ought not defend the Constitution. That's not the point. 
The point is, we have a right in America to stand up just as much as Jesus had a right and he chose to lay it down. There are times, church family, when we have to be willing, even though we have a rightful position, even as a husband that God has commanded your children and your wife to reverence and honor you, though that is a rightful position, we have a command, an example of Jesus to lay that down and be willing to be broken. That anything could be said about us and it doesn't bother us. Another famous preacher or a famous preacher uh, has phrased it, coined it, dying to self. Certainly that wasn't his own phrasing. But this one pastor from years gone by would often ask the question, have you died yet? Have you died, brother and sister? When's the last time that you died? And he certainly is not asking physically. He's asking spiritually, is your life marked by the dying process? Where your opinions don't matter. Your persona, your reputation. Uh, As a young father, as a young man, I find my reputation being one thing that I'd like to cherish a lot. My child acts up and the very first thing I think about is what are they going to think? And the Lord is saying, I'm using him for the dying process. I want you to be broken, young man. Uh, Just last night, I was telling the guys, I got a chance to play some basketball with a couple guys last night. And I missed an open layup that should have been there. And I got frustrated and I slapped the side wall and immediately the Holy Spirit said, not broken. Because broken men don't live that way. Church family, when you're driving down the highway and someone passes you and flips you the bird, what happens because broken men don't get angry? When when your wife is not submitted, do you get frustrated because broken men don't get frustrated? When the Holy Spirit prompts you to give the track and you resist the prompting, that's not what broken men do. When the Spirit says, don't look, turn that off, you say, but Lord, there's nothing wrong with this radio program. Lord, there's nothing wrong with that podcast. That's not what broken men do. The broken man takes the example of Jesus Christ and says, Father, not my will, but thine. May I ask us, church family, how's our obedience? Because obedience is a true test of brokenness. Very little obedience, very little brokenness. Small compromises, minimal surrender. Regular disobedience, it's an indication that there's no relationship with the Father. And my own personal journey, and some would know the testimony, and I'm not going to take the time to go through it all, but as a teenager, I had a very warped sense of who God was. Thinking that if I surrendered to Him, if I submitted to Him, He'd make me miserable. Isn't that the way it works? Don't you surrender to God and He sends you to Africa to boil water and beat snakes and sift flour? Isn't that that how it works? I heard a preacher say one time, if God wants to make you miserable, He doesn't need you to surrender to do it. He can make you miserable wherever He wants. That's not who He is. What He does with broken vessels is He restores them. In fact, brokenness is the pathway to life. And as, I, as a young man, the Lord beginning to lead me to that journey of brokenness and finally come to that place where I surrendered all my human will and all my human dreams, all the things that I wanted to do as a young man. And when God took those, He did not crush them. No, he remade them. I remember as a, uh, coming out of Bible college, going into seminary, saying, man, I wouldn't trade this thing for anything. Yieldedness to the Father is the best. And yet, I found myself still in the simple decisions and the little promptings of the Spirit disobeying him. About a year ago, God began to deal with me that when I rise in the morning, I'll rise with a desire to get into the Word. And I'll say, Father, I want to get, meet with you. And I'll, and I'll get into the Word and into prayer and, and I meet with the Lord. And, and that's precious. And at the end of the day, because the day is closing down and the, uh, the, the, the evening is approaching and the energy of the day is winding down and your mind begins to be more focused, maybe the spiritual desire would come back to finish the day with the Lord and maybe to read Scripture, to pray, or to be submitted as I go to bed. And I, and I found in the morning I was oftentimes wanting to be submitted. In the evening I'd want to finish the day submitted, but... From about 10 o'clock to 5 o'clock, God began to deal with me that I live those hours for myself. Those are the hours that God would prompt me with obedience and I would resist and began to conclude that you're not a man who's broken. But why is it, church family, that we often find ourselves resisting brokenness? We said at the beginning, uh, brokenness is often something we, we want to resist. It doesn't to break something. Isn't that meaning to lose value? But not in God's paradigm. 
and not even in nature. Now, I want to use an illustration here to try to help us understand this because we would all agree theologically, ah, uh, yes, you ought to be, be submitted to the Lord, but are we really willing to yield all of our daily decisions and our attitudes and our opinions and our reputation and our time and our impatience and all of it, are we really willing to yield that to the Lord? We find that something to resist. But I believe even nature shows us that to be submitted and broken is where, really where you find value. I'm going to name a couple of names. And as I name these names, I want you to call them out from the, from the pew. Hopefully, I know this is a main church, but I think you guys can probably be vocal. And so I want to call it out a name, and you tell me uh, who this person is. Okay? Are we, all, are we all clear? Okay, all right, here we go. All right, here we go. First one, uh, Secretariat. Okay, specifically, what was that? A racehorse, okay? Can you name the races that he won? Okay, I can't. So anyways, I'm just curious if anybody's really smart here. All right, Seabiscuit. Okay, uh, Man of War. Okay, Man of War. It's, it is a fish, but also a racehorse. Very good. Okay, uh, War Admiral. Okay, that's also a racehorse. Okay, those, all, those four, first four are all racehorses. I did a little research on those and, and what they have won. And the, the, I don't understand all the triple crown and all that kind of stuff. I, I think they're all pretty amazing. I've, I've never gone to the races, so I don't really know much about them. But anyways, okay, Traveler. Anybody know that name? Anybody know the name Traveler? Okay, it was. You're good. Okay, do you know whose horse? Yes, sir. It was Robert E. Lee. Okay, so Robert E. Lee's horse was Traveler. Okay, Blue Skin. Anybody recognize that one? That was George Washington. All right. Uh, trigger. Okay, very good. Uh, silver. Very. Figure. Anybody know a figure? No, figure was Justin Morgan. And then, of course, the classic, Mr. Ed. All right? Okay, Mr. Ed. You guys all know Mr. Ed. Besides Brother Ed in the back, you guys all know Ed. Mr. Ed, right? The horse, the talking horse. A horse is a horse, of course. Okay, all right. Yeah, tell that one. All right. So I was doing a little research on these, and all of these horses, uh, if you were, and I don't know what the total value would be to, to, to just of the ones I named there, but all of those horses are incredibly valuable. In fact, when I was doing a little research on the horse triggers, we all, you recognize, that's the one most everybody here recognized, Roy Rogers, his horse, and, and the history behind uh, that man and rider, they were saying basically it was a match made in heaven, essentially. Uh, over a period of almost 20 years, the original trigger appeared in each of Roy's 81 starring films at Republic and all 100 of his television episodes. Uh, this, is a this is what Happy Trails wrote, quote, this is a remarkable record unmatched by any other motion picture animal. Trigger lived to the ripe old age of 33 years old. When he died, he was taxidermied and was on display at the Roy Rogers Dale Evans Museum in, in Missouri until 2009. In 2010, he was sold at auction. So this is the stuffed animal. So this is stuffed Trigger. He was sold in 2010 to RFD TV for $266,000. That's a stuffed animal. That's the most expensive stuffed animal I've ever heard of. So Trigger, obviously, that's an expensive horse. Man of War, okay, a famous race horse. According to ESPN, a Texas oil millionaire offered $500,000 to the owner of Man of War. It was turned down. He upped it to a million for the horse. Again, it was turned down. Then the millionaire offered a signed blank check to the owner of Manowar. His name was Samuel Riddle. And Samuel Riddle turned him down with the statement, quote, the colt is not for sale. A blank check, and he wouldn't take it because the horse was so valuable. If you know anything about horse racing, even after a horse is, is beyond his ability, his bloodline is valuable to be able to breed his stud out, and then the next line would be expensive, and so on and so forth. These horses were all incredibly expensive. But of all the horses that I just read, what do they all have in common? They're all broken. Some are dead. Some are dead, but not all of them. Thank you, too. Thank you for Philbrick throwing, throwing that in there. But think about the significance of that. If you were to Google the top 100 horses in history, every single one of them was broken. In fact, you cannot find an unbroken horse in history of any significance. Even unless it's like a fairy tale, like uh, Misty or something like that. The only horses that history remembers are broken horses. 
There's significance in that. Because any horse trainer knows that even if a horse has good bloodlines, if it's unsubmitted and un, un, it is, if it is resistant to the master, it can have all the potential in the world, but it will have no value until the horse yields its will to the master. Several years ago, I was out in Wyoming, and I was with my brother-in-law, and he was, out, uh, he was doing some elk hunting, and, and I grew up watching a lot of westerns, and so the idea of wild horses was just fascinating to me, and so we were up in this mesa there while he was elk hunting, and, and off to the corner, I saw three wild horses, and I just, just was floored, like, Tim, look at this, and I'm grabbing my phone trying to take a picture. Look, look, look. He said, what? Look, elk? No, look. Who cares about elk? Wild stallions. He says, who cares about those nags? He says, man, the ranchers shoot them on sight. I said, you're kidding. He says, those things are the most useless hags around here. So why? Because they're unbroken. In fact, I began to look into this and to find out, so what is a broken horse worth? In other words, if your daughter came to you like daughters in my family did to my dad, Daddy, I want a horse. Daddy, I want a horse. You want a hay burner? Daddy, I want a horse. It'll, I'll, I'll never ask for a gift again if you give me a horse. That, that kind of situation. If your daughter came to you and asked you for a horse today, what would it cost you to get one? I mean, depending on too much. Okay, that's true. Okay. <laughs> but depending on to the level it's broken, okay, uh, I mean, if, it's, if it's at least saddle broke, we're talking $6,000 at least, okay? If it's saddle broken, at least trained to some extent, we're talking $24,000, $30,000. I was with a pastor in Texas. He has a barrel racing horse. He says, that thing's worth as much as my pickup truck. And they're, they're a lot of money because it's broken. But a horse that's unbroken, you can pick one up for $300, maybe $900, $1,200 if it's got good bloodlines, and certainly more if it came from a racehorse. But again, that's all based upon potential. Because if a horse doesn't surrender itself, if a horse doesn't yield itself, it's worthless. Except for glue, of course. <laughs> May I ask us, church family, are you broken? Because there's been little mark made on history by unbroken horses. And there's little significance made on eternity by unbroken men. Church family, I, I don't know why God specifically laid this message upon my heart tonight. But I would imagine that there's some people here you struggle with yielding your will. On a regular basis, you resist the Spirit's prompting. And you wonder why your, your prayer has no power. On a regular basis, you and your wife have conflict because there's just too much husband and there's too much wife floating around in the house. And you wonder why you're not close and why you're not intimate. You wonder why you haven't had an opportunity to lead someone to the Lord in years, and yet every time God prompts you to give a track, you say no. Is it any wonder why God has not given us the great miracles because we've not been willing to be, be faithful in the small? A year and a half ago, I was down in Texas, and we were doing meetings, and God began to minister to me in a, just a significantly powerful way, unlike I had ever experienced the presence of God in prayer in one afternoon was so powerful, it was so real, it was so precious. I went on about a two-week journey of just the presence of God being so sweet. In fact, I remember while we were down there, my wife was putting our children to bed, and I walked outside because I wanted to get outside. I wanted to get away from everybody else because I just wanted to talk with Jesus. It was His presence was so sweet. Any moment to be alone was precious because I just began talking with the Lord. I would just walk around the neighborhood where my grandfather's house was and Jesus' presence, as I began to pour out my heart and ask for things and began to share, it became so sweet. About two weeks later, I'd gone back to Wisconsin where our home church was and all of a sudden one day, the presence was just gone. I asked the Lord to show me why the presence had left. I began to seek the Lord. Lord, did I commit some sin? Lord, what have I done? Have I missed something? And it didn't seem like the Lord showed me any blatant sin that I had committed. For several days, I began to ask, Lord, that sweetness it was so real. The power of the prayer was so wonderful. Lord, your presence was more real than I've ever experienced. Lord, what happened? Why did I miss it? What have I, what have I done? About three days in, I was getting ready to walk into a gymnasium. I was helping ref a basketball game that night, and I was weighed down, burdened down. I didn't even want to enter into the gym and step onto the court because I was just so burdened. Lord, why have I lost your presence? And as I stood in the doorway asking the Lord to give me a, an understanding, the Holy Spirit spoke so clearly and said, Caleb, it's because you've been disobedient. I remember stopping and not walking in saying, Lord, what is it? 
He said, a year ago, I prompted you and I've told you that I want you to be a soul winner. And you've resisted time and again. I've graciously led you over and over again. I've given you opportunities and you keep resisting. And Caleb, I've shown you my hand. I've delivered to you my presence and I've stayed it. And I will not give it again until you choose to be obedient. Now, church family, I have hesitated to preach on soul winning for so long because I haven't been one. You can look at, listen to all of my messages I've preached online. You're not going to find one on soul winning because I don't want to be a hypocrite. But as God began to deal with me, and if I'll admit, it was about back in, it was just back in February of this year, God began to deal with me and say, Caleb, I, I cannot continue to show you my presence until you'll break, allow yourself to be broken and submit yourself to me. Fast forward, I do through January, I began to plead with the Lord that He would change my cold heart towards souls. I was willing to preach on revival, but to love someone enough to be fearless and say, Brother, you need Jesus. Man, have you heard about Jesus? Ma'am, do you know about the one Jesus Christ? Are you born again to be that bold I was so fearful of? I didn't mind preaching on revival, but that level of brokenness I was not willing this March, so last month, this is not long ago, and this, that's why I hesitate to share this. It's not easy to share this, but sometimes um, brokenness needs company. Last March, I was traveling through West Virginia. We had a Wednesday night open, so I stopped at a church service because I wanted to visit a missionary that I had known. I did not realize that there was another evangelist preaching at that church. That night, he dealt with the gospel. He was not preaching the gospel and he was not getting down on us about not preaching the gospel. He was just sharing wonderful testimonies of people who were just faithful witnesses. And God so strongly and sweetly dealt with me and broke the back of my resistance. I said, Father, I want to be a soul winner. I'm not, I'm not saying that you stand in line in a grocery store with 100 people standing behind you, you badger the cashier. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying when you're saying, Lord, I just, want to, I just want to love someone enough to give them the gospel. That was back in March. I said, Lord, something's got to change. The next day I said, God, I got to give someone the gospel. And for the next two weeks, I don't know if I missed a day giving someone the gospel. And you know what began to happen? Divine appointment after divine appointment after divine appointment. Like I'm waiting at the, uh, at the airport I'd flown from uh, uh, Providence, Rhode Island, had flown down to Richmond, and my whole family were sitting there. It had been a long day of flying. We're standing there waiting for our bus, and our bus isn't coming. And now an unbroken man gets mad at the bus driver. An unbroken man says, look, you should have been here half an hour ago. You promised me you were going to be here. What's the matter with you? We're not getting to our hotel. My kid's not getting a nap. What's the matter with you? That's what an unbroken man does. But God was dealing with me about broken submission. I said, Father, who, what soul might be here because you allowed the timing to be off? Church family, if you get mad about timing, it's because you're unbroken. And if you're unbroken, you're not seeing souls. So I said, Lord, what timing is off? You have someone for me. Began walking up and down the aisle. This is just a month ago. I'm just, I'm just telling you, like, this is what God has been doing. We began walking up and down the aisle saying, Lord, where might be somebody? And I came up to this man right here. I said, hey, can I tell you something? I said, have you ever heard about the fact that Jesus Christ wants to save you? I want to give you the, and he kind of looks at me. We're, we're in, just kind of like, who, who, who are you? And well, that wasn't going anywhere, but at least I give him a track and, and looking for somebody else. And, and uh, Gilbert walks onto the a bus, and it's not our bus. I say, hey, buddy, you gotta wait. You can't get on there. And uh, so he starts talking to the bus driver, and the bus driver's talking to him. So I just stand there and shooting the breeze with the lady, and and uh, she says, yeah, I'm part time, and you know, I used to be full time, but I decided to go to part time because it's not all about money. You know, it's about faith, it's about family. I said, oh, faith. I said, do you do you do you have faith? And she said, well, you know, I believe in God, and, and uh, I and she, I said, do you know him personally? Well, I you know, I hope so. I said, okay, ma'am. I said, did you know you can know so? 1 John 5 tells us that we can know him personally. And she's just kind of looking at me. So I began to start, start into the conversation. I said, ma'am, the question is, are you born again? And she says, you know, I read a devotional this morning. And in the devotional, they posed that question. Have you been born again? And I was wondering how you did that. <laughs> And I'm sitting there going, divine appointment, but I would have never got that if I had just grabbed Gilbert frustrated that the bus driver wasn't here yet and we left the bus. And she opened up and I began to tell her how to be born again. And she had to leave. But I said, look, take, read this track. This track tells you how to be born again. And I walked away from there saying, man, that was a divine appointment that I would not have received if I had been unbroken. I was preaching at a church in Rhode Island just a few weeks ago. And when I'm preaching on revival truths, I'm sorry to say this, but oftentimes because I have been unbroken in this matter of soul winning, 
I will give an invitation for revival truths, but I very often forget to do anything with the gospel because it's not been what has been vibrating in my heart until God began this journey in my heart. So I was preaching on a message on prayer and I turned op- or opened up the invitation to the people and people came forward and getting right and, and dealing with sin and things like that. And, then, and the Holy Spirit just began to deal with me. I said, look, maybe there's someone out here. And it wasn't just a passive remark, but maybe there's someone here. You've come in here tonight and you don't know Jesus. You've never called on him for salvation. You're condemned to hell right now, but you need Jesus to save you. Is there anyone like that? I don't often give that invitation because I've just been cold to it. God was breaking my unsubmitted spirit. No hand went up that I could see, and so I closed down the invitation, and it was over. The youth pastor comes up to me afterwards and says, hey, did you hear about the lady? I said, no, I didn't hear about that. A lady had walked in uh, right after the service had started. Two ladies, actually. One was saved. One was lost. I did not know this. They were sisters. The one lady who was saved had brought her sister. She was deaf, and she was also dying of cancer. In fact, the week before, this deaf lady who was dying of cancer had been in such pain the week previous that I, to the service that I had been there, the week previous she had driven to Massachusetts and picked up a suicide kit, which is essentially self-assisted euthanasia where you know you're going to lose your life anyway, so there are these kits that are legal in Massachusetts where I don't know if it's a shot or if it's a pill, but you just choose when to end your life. So she went and picked one up. She had it in her home, and her sister had compelled her to come. She comes down and sits here on the deaf section, and in the time it took for the translator to talk with her and back and forth about the invitation, I had already closed it down, clueless of what was going on. But God had so stirred me with the need to give the gospel. After the invitation was over, she responded, went to the, the deaf translator and said, I've never, I've never done that. And they sat down and the lady led her to the Lord. And I was tickled for two days because a lady who was, who, who was dying of cancer and had been making the process, making all the steps to take her own life had just gone from darkness to light and it all started. Certainly I was just a part in the story. But for me and my own personal journey, the Lord is showing me, Caleb, when you submit your will and yield, look at the glorious, joyous, incredible experiences I do in your life. Look, church family, brokenness is not a loss of value. Brokenness is where life starts. When Jesus Christ came to this place in the garden where he yielded his will, he knew he was going to the cross to die. And when he made his way to the cross to die, there was all kinds of people who looked at him and mocked him. But once he died because of brokenness, he allowed himself to die. The centurion after Christ's death said, Surely... This is the man of God. Look, church family, what life would flow if you would take the opportunity to die? What life, what value would be given if you would yield your will to the Father, your reputation to the Father, your time to the Father, your abilities to the Father, your failures to the Father, to the Father, your divorce to the Father, your remarriage to the Father. I'm saying you yield it all to Him because you know what He does with all those things? He makes new. He redeems. He can give life. When He came through the ascension, through the resurrection we just celebrated, what was He proving? I make life out of all that was dead. I can give life and value to all that was broken. Jesus Christ is the example of life and value flowing from brokenness and dying. May I ask us, church family, this evening, are you marked by brokenness? Because our Jesus was. And that is why today he is known as gentle and lowly. Why he can offer a tender hand to you because he is not an arrogant man. He is not a vindictive master who when his child disobeys, he slaps him upside the head. No, that's not who your Savior is because he is a broken gentle and lowly, wanting to offer to us all gifts of forgiveness and restitution. Restoration, the psalmist says that he rejoiced in the bones that were broken. And I'll close with this. Church family, there is a level of fellowship and understanding in who Jesus is that you cannot have until you enter into brokenness. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, his quest that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the 
fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. He said, I desire to enter into the very fellowship of the brokenness and dying of Jesus. There is a fellowship with Jesus that is reserved only for those who enter into the closet of brokenness. There is a depth of Jesus that you cannot know until you experience brokenness. Because there in brokenness, Jesus who has been broken for you and for me, Jesus can come alongside and be for you what the disciples were not for him. Church family, will we embrace brokenness? It was October of 2011, and a lady by the name of Jessica Buchanan was on a uh, charity trip, uh, part of a Danish charity in the land of Somalia. The reason that she was there is she was trying to teach children about the dangers of uh, landmines and how to recognize them. She was just a humanitarian aid worker. On that day in 2011, Jessica and her Danish co-worker, uh, they were traveling down a, a, a rough path together to go to a large village to work with some children. And, and this man, Paul, was his name, and, and this lady, Jessica, they were in this, this jeep that was traveling down the path. And, and all of a sudden, I don't know if it was gunshots that started or a vehicle that veered in front of them, but their, their vehicle that they were in was stopped suddenly, and there was Somali pirates all around them. And they began to bang on the windows and, and uh, pull the driver out. And they jumped in the seat and a Somali pirate jumped in next to her and shoved his AK right up into her face. He was high on drugs and they took off through the night. That started a 93-day saga where Jessica Buchanan, suffering all kinds of physical ailments and excruciating pain, was held hostage for a ransom of some $45 million that no one would pay. Jessica, going through this terrible tragedy, the only human being that had any sympathy for her was the Danish man that she traveled with. His name was Paul. She and Paul were bonded together through this time of great suffering. And, and the two of them would, would reminisce and share things and point at stars and name their captives and play little mind games, trying to do whatever it could they could just to endure those days because the two of them going through that time of anguish, that's all they had was the two of them together. Finally, on January 25th, after 93 days of captivity, a group of, I believe it was SEAL Team 6, Navy SEALs, were parachuted in two miles from their encampment. They ran through the night and neutralized, if I could put it that way, took out all of the bandits and rescued her, taking her to the helicopter. And she was immediately flown back to the States and reunited with her husband. And through all of that, though she was close and loved her husband, there was a connection that she would have with that man, Paul, that she could not have had with any other person because she and Paul went through a terrible time of difficulty together. No other person will understand what she and Paul alone have. There is a bond between them, though not intimate like a bond with her husband, but there is a bond that the two of them share because of going through mutual burdens. And that is the same bond, uh, uh, bond fellowship that the Lord would like to have with us in taking us through a journey of brokenness who he has also experienced that burden, burden, journey of brokenness and he would bear that burden and take alongside of us and teach us about what it means, the joys of brokenness and restoration and life. Church family, are you broken? May I ask you all to bow your heads with me here tonight and close your eyes?